I want to read to you the words found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 11, reading from the beginning of verse 23 to the end of verse 32. From verse 23 to 32 in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Romans. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and wert graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted in into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Well, obviously, I'm not proposing to deal with all that tonight. But I have read those verses to you because they uh, constitute uh, a kind of subsection of this main section of this chapter that runs from verse 11 to the end of that 32nd verse. In other words, we are starting here tonight on a new subdivision or subsection of this main division. And it is, of course, a most important one. It will be very difficult to find anywhere in the scripture a greater amount of teaching packed into small compass than we have in the words that I've just been reading to you. And as we shall see, they are of the greatest possible importance to us. If we want to understand God's ways with respect to us, we want to understand the church, and if we want to understand the future. And as we look at all those, the main effect and result undoubtedly will be that we shall be strengthened in our faith, and we shall see whatever the difficulties and the obstacles that may be facing us at this moment, that in the sight of God and in the eyes of God, they are but as nothing. God's great plan and purpose is certainly and surely going to be carried out. Well, very well. Here it is then, I say, it's the beginning of a new, of a new subsection. And again, it seems to me to be very important that I should remind you of our analysis of this whole chapter. Nowhere, perhaps, has the apostle reasoned and argued a case more closely than he does in this great chapter. And uh, the danger is, of course, uh, that we uh, miss the wood because of the trees. We've got to pay attention to details, and they're essential. But 
We mustn't stop at the details. We must keep on reminding ourselves of the whole picture. Indeed, it is a part of my case uh, to remind you again that you really will not be able to understand the details unless you do grasp the whole. The whole is more important than the details. But the two, of course, are of essential importance. Now then, the object of the chapter is to tell us that God has not finished with the Jews as a people, as a race, as a nation. The appearances at that time strongly suggested that. There they were, the bulk of them, outside the Christian church. And many had come to the conclusion, and it was the peculiar temptation that confronted the Gentiles to come to that conclusion that God had finished with his ancient people. The whole object of the chapter is to refute that and to show that that is entirely wrong. Now, there are two main sections in the statement. The first section is from verse 1 to verse 10, where the apostle demonstrates that the rejection of Israel wasn't total. It wasn't a total rejection. Then from verse 11 to verse 32, he shows that it's not a final rejection. It's only a temporary one. Now there are the two main sections and divisions. But we are now engaged, you see, in the second main division, which starts at verse 11 and goes on to the end of verse 32. Now, I must again remind you of what he's been saying, because each step leads to the next. That's his logical method. He builds up his case. Remember, therefore, that he states the main proposition in verses 11 and 12. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Is this a real final falling away? His answer is, in the word stumbled. They haven't fallen, they've only stumbled. God forbid, he says. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them, the Jews, to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? That's the case. There he throws out this first hint that there is going to be a restoration, that the Jews as a bulk, as a race, as it were, are going to believe the gospel and are going to come in. Then you remember in verses 13 and 14, he has a little digression explaining why he's taking the trouble to say all this to Gentiles. He does so because he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and he magnifies his office. He wants them to understand these things. Then in verse 15, he states his big case again. If the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? But life from the dead. There's the great proposition. Then, you see, he, well, he's got to establish this. His grounds for saying that they are going to be received back again. And in verse 16, he throws out an argument. If the first root be holy, the lump is also holy. If the root be holy, so are the branches. That, you remember, was just uh, this historical reference to the origin of this nation in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and so on. And the argument that he based upon that. Then, in verse 17... He has a digression again, the thing we've been considering recently, verse 17 to verse 22, where again his great pastoral heart comes out, and his concern about these people 
is most prominent. He delivers a, an exhortation to the Gentiles. He wants to warn them. He wants to safeguard them uh, from certain uh, terrible errors. So he exhorts them to humility and gives his reason uh, for doing so. Very well. But in verse 23, where we arrive at now, he goes back again to the main argument. He turned aside because he's a teacher, because he's a pastor, because he's a preacher. He's developing a great argument, but he wants to be sure that they're with him and that, that he's carrying them with him, so he applies it and enforces it and underlines the thing. So typical of him. But he comes back, he comes back to the main theme, and that's what he takes up again then in verse 23. And the theme is, once more, this restoration of the Jew. This theme that he stated in verse 12 and repeated in verse 15. Back he comes to it again. Now he rarely is going to deal with it finally from here on. And so he deals with this, as I say, until the end of the 32nd verse. Now, how do we approach this uh, most important subsection of this great argument? And it seems to me and I'm more and more fascinated by this particular section. There are many ways in which it can be treated. But I've come to the conclusion you may have your own way of doing it. But to me, this is the, the way that appeals most of all. There are two ways in which we can look at this and in which we can uh, deal with it. The first is, if you like, uh, a mere kind of mechanical division. A mechanical division of the subsection. We've adopted that method several times so far, and of course it is a very good one. In many ways, it is uh, the first that one should always use, use in, in exposition. So let's uh, try it like that. And, and uh, here are the divisions. In verses 23 and 24, he shows the possibility and the reasonableness and indeed even the probability of the restoration of the Jews as a nation. The possibility of it, the reasonableness of it, and indeed the probability of it. But then, from verse 25 to verse 22, he makes a tremendous statement where he speaks of not the probability nor the possibility, but the absolute certainty of the restoration of the Jews as a nation. This, he says, is something that has been revealed to him. So he makes one of his great prophetic utterances. And as is his custom, he points out that though in a sense it is new and surprising, it actually isn't new. It had been prophesied in the Old Testament. He always clinches everything he says by an Old Testament quotation. And here we will find that there are two main ones. That's verses 25 to 27, where we're dealing now not with possibilities and probabilities, but absolute certainty, a dogmatic pronouncement. Then uh, it's from here on uh, I find myself in some difficulty, and yet I think that on the whole this is the best way to put it. That from verse 28 to the end of verse 32, he rarely is just recapitulating 
what he has been saying all the way from verse 11. It's a, a recapitulation of the whole statement. He does it in order to sum it up and in order to emphasize it and to underline it and bring out the great principle which governs everything, which is this in verse 32, that God has concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. So I think the best way of looking at 28 to 32 is to look at it as recapitulation. There are other ways in which one could have subdivided that, uh, perhaps when we come actually to deal uh, with that portion, we shall do so. But taking it as a whole, it is indeed a bit of recapitulation, reiteration. He says, now then, it all comes to this. There's, in a sense, nothing new in those verses. He stated it in different forms earlier on in the chapter. Now, there's one way. That's what I call a kind of mechanical division of the matter. But there's a second way in which we can look at this, and that is in terms of the way in which this subsection advances the great argument that the apostle is deploying. And I rather like to think of it in this way. Now, again, let us for a moment look at the wonderful way in which the great apostle handles this matter. There's nothing, in a way, in the whole of Scripture that's more difficult than this chapter. Uh, you've got to concentrate. You've got to use all your powers. You, you, you need uh, the aid of the Holy Spirit. It, it's, a, it's a most difficult matter. People have often, therefore, neglected this chapter altogether. They say, I don't know what he's talking about there. All this argument backwards and forwards. Well, the answer is that the apostle, if you take the trouble you will find that he follows his argument along. The difficulty partly arises because he always was so much of a pastor and a preacher. And of course, that, that means that he's a, a very great teacher. He, he, the teacher doesn't merely state things. He wants them to be grasped by the people. So the apostle drives them home all along. And therefore, there's a sense in which, having gone right through all the details, you stand back and you just watch the mounting argument. Now, let me try and do that for you. Let me pick out the argument. And, and we'll see the way, therefore, in which he builds it up and ends on a great climax. What he's setting out, I say, to do is to show that God is not finished with the Jews. Now then, here are his arguments. The first. The first argument he's got to prove that God has not finished with the Jews is right away at the beginning of the chapter when he says that he himself is a proof that that isn't so. I myself also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin. And if he, if he were the only one who had become a Christian, it would be enough. You couldn't say that God had finished with the Jews when this man of all men, this prominent apostle himself was a Jew who had believed the gospel. There's first argument. Then the second argument was the argument concerning the remnant according to the election of grace. That's argument number two. You remember when we were doing this? I myself, but not only I, there are others. A remnant according to the election of grace. So there, you see, is his second argument. Then the third argument is in verse 16. 
That argument about the first fruit, you remember, if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. Or, as he puts it in the terms of root, if the root be holy, so are the branches. You remember, the argument was, and it would appeal to Jews particularly, that if this first fruit of the lump that was offered was holy, well, as it is representative of the whole, if the first fruit is holy, the whole must be. And then the other illustration, the root and the branches. The nature of the root will determine the nature of the branches. In other words, the argument is, because what was true of the fathers of Israel was true of them, well then certain things must be true of those who come after them. So there is the third argument, and it's a very powerful argument. Now then, in this 23rd verse, he moves on to his fourth argument. And his fourth argument is based upon the power of God. God is able. That's argument number four. In this main argument. Then in verse 24, we have his fifth main argument. And the fifth main argument is this. That in the light of what God has already done in the case of the Gentiles, it is further proof that it is not impossible for him to restore the Jews also. He argues again from the greater to the lesser, how much more so, one of his favorite ways of argumentation. But that's argument number five. Now I hope you've got these. His own case, the remnant according to the election of grace, the argument about the very constitution of the nation of Israel, then number four, God's power and ability. And fifthly, what God has already done in the case of the Gentiles, proves his ability to do it also in the case of the Jews. Then in verse 25, he's come to the end of argumentation. And uh, now he just makes this tremendous statement. This dogmatic, prophetic pronouncement, which is going to put the thing beyond any doubt or question whatsoever. There's no further answer. God has made a revelation. And having said that, all he has to do now is, well, to sum it all up, recapitulate, put it in brief compass, say, this is what it amounts to, therefore. And then, as you know from verse 33 to the end, having looked at it all, he's himself so filled with amazement that he can but burst out in that great exclamation, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, and so on. Well, now then. There is an analysis of this uh, important and tremendous subsection. Having done that, we can proceed to the exposition and look now at his particular statements. So we start with the 23rd verse. And here I say that he is uh, dealing with the possibility of the restoration of the Jews. This is where we find this fourth argument of his. And um, he explains it to us. He says, they also. That's a reference, as we shall see, to the Jews. You see, this links on with what he just said at the end of verse 22. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell, there's the bulk of the Jews, severity. But toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise... Thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, back again to them, 
if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Now, here is a, an interesting and an important statement. Uh, he says that uh, there is a possibility with regard to the unbelieving Jews. But he says there is a condition with respect to this. And uh, it's most interesting to notice how he puts it. They also, if they abide not still in unbelief. Now, the apostle here is going to repeat and reassert his great principle with regard to the way of salvation or of entry into the church, into the kingdom of God. What is it? This is the thing that he's been hammering all along. And back he comes to it again. What is this principle? Well, negatively, and this is the thing he wants to say, it isn't a question of nationality. It isn't a question of works. What is it then? Well, it is always a matter of faith only. It is a matter of belief. If they abide not still in unbelief. There's only one thing that admits anybody into the kingdom of God and into the church of God, and that is faith. Or putting it negatively, the only hindrance and obstacle is unbelief. It's never a matter of nationality. Now, the Jews have made that mistake. The Gentiles were, tempting, were tempted to make the same mistake. So he has reminded them that they also must continue in this goodness in faith, in believing in this goodness and so on, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. It's always a question of faith and of belief. There is only one principle which God ever uses in his dealings with men. And he's never used another. It has always been faith from the very beginning. There never will be any other way whatsoever. Salvation is always by faith and by faith only. This is this great cardinal doctrine of justification by faith only. Now, it's interesting to notice that the apostle puts this negatively, not positively. They also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted. Is there significance in this? Well, I think there is. Because, again, he's safeguarding a very important and a very vital truth. This isn't the first time we've come across this point. We've had it many, many times. But the apostle goes on repeating it, and we, therefore, have to do the same thing. In teaching his great doctrine of election, he is very careful always to assert at the same time man's responsibility. Now, we are to say that many times in doing chapter 9 and also in chapter 10, and we've had to say it several times already in this chapter. I've put it like this each time. That man is responsible for his damnation, but is never responsible for his salvation. Now, you may say to me, how can you reconcile those? It's not for us to reconcile them. That is what is called an antinomy. It is what is plainly taught in the scripture. The doctrine of election must never be supposed to teach that man is not responsible. Man is responsible. And everywhere we have seen so plainly and so clearly, 
that if a man ends in damnation, it is his fault and his responsibility. But it is equally clear that it is God who saves and that no man saves himself. That's why the apostle puts the negative here rather than the positive. He doesn't say, you see, that they will be saved if they believe. Because if he said that, many would say, ah, it's men's belief after all that saves him. The apostle doesn't put it like that, therefore he puts it like this. He says, if they abide not still in unbelief, it's the negative. And man's part is always the negative. Interesting to notice that, you see how that comes in once more. This thing which we found so often. God is responsible for the salvation of every soul. The lost are entirely responsible for their lost condition. They are offered salvation, they deliberately reject it. And therefore they are responsible. There are the two sides of this great doctrine that runs right through the whole Bible. Election and responsibility. Very well, in to, in order to, to support that, notice, let's go on and notice what he says. He doesn't say, you see, that they're able to graft themselves in again. No, no. It's God who is able to graft them in again. They shall be grafted in. You don't graft yourself into this olive tree. That is something that men cannot do. It's impossible with men. In other words, the emphasis here, as I said in my analysis at the beginning, the real point of this verse is to emphasize God's power. God is able to graft them in again. Now, let's again get back into our minds and into our view the position with which the apostle was dealing. And, of course, it's in a sense equally true today. As you and I, as Christian people, look out upon the whole scene, we might very well come to the conclusion that the people who are in the most hopeless position as regards salvation are the Jews. Because they are what they are. Because of their background and everything. They seem to be in the most hopeless position of all. And they were at this time. The Gentiles were tempted to come to the conclusion that nothing could ever be done with them that God had finally cast them out, thrown them away. Now the apostle says, it isn't so. Because of God's power, God is able to graft them in again. Now the word translated able is an interesting and an important word. It carries in it a suggestion of great difficulty, that it's not an easy thing. And that's the whole point of this argument. It's a very difficult thing, this. But God can do it. That's what the Apostle is saying. Now, this is uh, something that, uh, of course, you find very often in the Scriptures. I read to you just now that portion after the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Mark. Because we have there a very graphic illustration of this very point. You remember the rich young ruler coming to our law. Such an excellent man. Such a moral man. Such a religious man. Such a good man. And above all, one who obviously admired our Lord and comes to him asking for help and for advice. But he goes away sorrowful. And the uh, apostles, you remember, were taken aback at this. They were astonished. It's repeated twice the second time we are told that they were astonished beyond measure. They were amazed. 
And they turned to our Lord and they said, Who then can be saved? They said, If, this, if a man like this is outside, and you say that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God, who then can be saved? The thing's impossible. And you remember our Lord's reply in verse 27. With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. That's the answer. It's the only answer. With men it is impossible, but not with God. That's the very thing we've got here. The restoration of the Jews seems utterly impossible. And it's only possible in one way, and that is God is able to graft them in again. With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. In other words, the restoration of the Jews is possible for one reason only, and that is that it is the miraculous action of God that's going to do it, nothing else. Now, we've already, he's already told us that, but he's repeating it here again. Nothing less or short of the power of God could possibly bring this to pass. But it's God who's going to do it. God is able to graft them in again. This impossible thing is possible with God. Now, you, I think you'll find that uh, all the subsequent argumentation, right until the end of verse 32, is virtually saying just that. That's why this first verse here is such an important one. This is the first statement, and he's going to work it out more and more. This is the basis of everything. God's power, God's ability. Very well. Now then, in the, another point we must notice here in this same verse is this one. And this is a negative point I'm making now. But uh, I think you'll see the significance of it and the importance of doing it. This them that he talks about, they also. Who are they? And what about this word again? They also. If they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them, this them, this they and them, the same people, again. Now, we've got to be careful about this. Because on the surface, you might come to the conclusion that the people who are to be grafted in again are the ones who've already been taken out. In verse 17, if some of the branches be broken off, or again, as he puts it in the 22nd verse, behold, therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity. You see, or in verse 19, thou wilt say, then the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, then you say, he must be saying here in verse 23, that the branches which had been broken off are going to be put in again. The very same branches that were broken off are going to be grafted in again. It looks like that on the surface, doesn't it? But of course, it cannot possibly mean that. And for this reason, it cannot mean it purely in terms of history. Here was the Apostle writing 1900 years ago, and more than that. And he is telling them about something that is 
going to happen. It hasn't even happened yet. So patently, he is not referring to the Jews who were alive in the first century and who had rejected our Lord and who were persecuting the Apostle Paul and other Christians. They're not the same people. So that uh, he's not saying that the very self-same persons who have been cut off are again going to be grafted in. No, what he means by the they and the them is the Jews regarded racially or nationally. It can mean nothing else. As I've been at pains to point out to you all along, what the Apostle is dealing with in this chapter is not individual salvation. He is dealing here with the question of the bulk of the Jews. Now, in earlier chapters, he's been dealing with the individual. But here, he's dealing specifically with the Jews as a race, the bulk of the Jews. And so, when he talks about they and them, he is not referring to the contemporaries of himself and of our Lord who were outside. He's referring to the race of the Jews in some future time. Why do I take the trouble to emphasize that particular point? Well, my reason for doing so is this, that if you read this verse superficially, you might very well come to this kind of conclusion. You would say the apostle is there teaching quite plainly that there is such a thing as falling away from grace. He's saying that here was a man who once was in the church because of sin and unbelief. He's taken out of the church. He's uh, torn off. He's outside. But he can come back again. Now there are people who teach that kind of thing. They preach a falling away from grace and then a restoration. There is a type of superficial evangelism and teaching which almost gives this impression that a man can take a decision, he can become a Christian, he can receive life from God, then he can lose it by sinning. And then if he repents, he can get it back again. So that you're not born again, you are then born again, you're again not born again, and again you can be born. Craft him in again. So you can go in and out of the olive tree. Now that's a very common teaching today. It's a very superficial teaching, I say. Because it is something that is just impossible. That's why it's so important we should have an exact and a correct interpretation of what the Apostle is saying in this verse. The they and the them are not the same people whom he has referred to as already cast out. Not the same individuals. It is a reference only to the Jews as a race. At this time, the Jews as a race were outside. He's saying there's a day to come when they will be brought in again. So that you see there is nothing here to teach because there is nothing anywhere else in the scripture. And it is impossible that a man can be saved and lost and saved and lost and in and out. Now, there's only one reason why people ever teach anything like that. And that is that they forget the doctrine of regeneration. They put so much emphasis on a man's decision. A man decides to receive Christ and to be a Christian. And he holds on for a while. Then he falls into sin and he denies it all. Then after a while again he's sorry and he comes back. And he says, I believe again. And they say, he's back again. He goes in and out of the kingdom. 
You see, if you don't accept the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints, you've got to say something like that. So here again is a verse that teaches very positively the final perseverance of the saints. Let me put it like this. That kind of teaching is not only wrong but impossible for this reason. It is God who does the grafting. It is God who produces regeneration. And when God puts this life of his in the soul, it is put there and it remains there. It is inconceivable that you can have this life and lose it and have it again. There is no such teaching in the whole of the scripture. And indeed it implies a failure on the part of God. And there is no failure on the part of God. It is God who is able to put anybody into this olive tree. And when God does put anybody into this olive tree, he remains in this olive tree. And there is nothing, therefore, to countenance that doctrine of falling away from grace or the possibility of being in and out of Christ or of having Christ in you and Christ not in you, having a seed of divine life. As John puts it, the seed abideth, the seed remaineth, Thank God it does. That is why salvation in Christ is certain and sure and cannot fail. It is God who is able to graft them in again. Very well. There's the statement of verse 23. Let me just deal with 24, for it really is just a, a carrying on of this same point. He starts with the word for, indicative of that. And here is his fifth argument, as I told you, which supports the fourth argument and makes it still more obvious. And it's just a statement to this effect. God has already done something which inherently is more difficult than bringing in the Jews. What's that? That's bringing in the Gentiles. If thou were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were graft contrary to nature into the good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, you see, that's carrying on what he says in verse 23. God has done, if we may say so, the most impossible thing of all, and that is the bringing in of the Gentiles. This is something, he says, which is contrary to nature. Now, we've already referred to that. It means two things. It means even in, in the very illustration, the horticultural illustration that he's using, it is unnatural. In horticulture, you don't put a bad graft onto a good stock. You do the exact opposite. You put the good graft onto a bad stock. You remember how we illustrated that. That is the familiar practice. But here something quite different is happening. A bad graft is put into the good stock and it begins to receive of the root and fatness of the good stock. That's one meaning then of contrary to nature. But it's uh, got a, a second meaning, this contrary to nature, which means this. The Gentiles were entirely outside the covenant of God. They didn't belong to God's people. You remember what we are told about the Jews in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5? 
5 and 6, now 4 and 5, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. That's true of Jews. It is not true of Gentiles. They're unnatural. They're outside. They belong to a wild olive tree. They're without God, without hope. They're in the world. They're enemies and aliens. Peter says, you were not a people. You were nothing. You were just a rabble. You were completely hopeless. Indeed, Paul has been saying this in the 10th chapter in verses 19 and 20. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. And by a foolish nation, I will anger No people, foolish nation. Well, now, what he's saying is this. If God has been able to bring in people like that, who are so absolutely remote in every sense from the people of God, if he's been able to do that, well, how much easier is it for him to bring in Jews who by nature belong to this tradition? In other words, the case of the Jews, far from being more difficult than any other, is nothing like as difficult as the case of the Gentiles. For the Jews, after all, can be described as the natural branches. Now, we went into all this in dealing with verses 16 and 17, so I needn't repeat it. You know, that external Israel, all these descendants of Abraham, in that external sense, they belonged to the olive tree. They were the natural branches, the first branches. And the argument is simply this. If God can bring in those who are completely outside, the wild olive tree and graft in, well, how much easier will it be to bring in those who, by nature, as it were, belong to this olive tree? How much easier ought it be for a Jew to become a Christian, if you like, than a Gentile? It isn't so, of course, because it's God who brings in birth, as he's going to tell us in verse 32. But looking at it generally and from the human standpoint, it appears to be much easier. All their teaching in the Old Testament was preparing them for this. All the promises, all the ceremonial of the temple, the burnt offerings and sacrifices, even the furniture, everything was pointing to this deliverer, this Messiah. And then he comes. How easy it should have been. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. How natural that it should end in Christianity. That's all he's saying. So it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. How much more, though? If God can do it in the case of Gentiles who never have belonged to the olive tree at all in any sense, well, how much easier will it be for God to bring those who, in an external and a natural sense, do and always have belonged to this olive tree that was started by God in Abram and the patriarchs. Very well, we must leave it at that for tonight. The apostle has brought us then up to that particular point. No one must say that the Jews are entirely outside, finished, God has rejected them, or that it's impossible to bring them back because of their antagonism. No, no, says Paul. God can do it. And he's given proof of the fact that he can do it by doing something still more impossible. If God can save a Gentile, how much more so can he save a Jew? That's the point at which we have to leave it 
for this evening. God willing, we'll go on to the great prophetic utterance of verse 25 next Friday evening. Let us pray. O Lord, we come again unto thee, and we thank thee for these blessed words. God is able. O Lord, we know that none of us would be saved were it not for that, and we humbly thank thee and acknowledge that we are thy workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus, while we were dead in trespasses and sins, thou didst quicken us together with Christ. Even while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. O God, we rejoice before thee that thou art able, thou art able to save us, even us, Thou art able to keep us, and thou art able to bring us safely into thine eternal kingdom. We thank thee that we rest this night as ever our faith in thee and in the power of thy might alone. O God, receive our praise. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit Abide and continue with us now, this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we are in the glory everlasting. Amen. <laughs>